0: Uh, but if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. I hope you're excited about Bible camp this week, and, and I am. And, and if, you're, if you're a part of that, certainly thank you for being a part of that. And, and, and come excited to minister to the kids. And if you're not part of that, be praying. Be praying this week for the kids will get saved and that God will use that uh, in the life of those kids and in, in the life of our church. Uh, but th- this morning we're closing out. Acts chapter 6. It's a relatively short chapter. It's only 15 verses. It's actually the shortest chapter uh, in the book of Acts. But it's a very important one. It's a very important chapter in the grand scheme of what God was doing in history at this time. Because in Acts chapter 6, we're introduced to a very important character. And, And it's a character that God used mightily in what he was doing in history at that time. And that character's name is Stephen. And Stephen is only on the scene for two chapters in the book of Acts. But he plays such an integral role in what God was doing, in God's plan. And he ultimately, he becomes the first martyr for following Jesus. He'll be killed in chapter 7. I've noted that numerous times. But we were introduced to him last Sunday as he was the first named deacon in that early Jewish church. And we're going to learn much more about Stephen today as the remainder of this chapter shifts to focus on him and to focus on his ministry. And then in chapter 7, the, the longest chapter in the book of Acts, chapter 6 is the shortest chapter, and chapter 7 is the longest chapter, we're going to hear him preach and condemn those leaders of Israel one final time uh, before they kill him, which is a major, you know, the major kind of event uh, in the book of Acts. And these chapters, the, chapter 6 and 7 in the life of Steve, Stephen, they're critically important if you really want to understand the major transition that's going on uh, in the book of Acts, from a Jewish focus to a Gentile focus, from a kingdom of heaven focus to a kingdom of God focus. And we're going to talk more about that. We will talk all about the doctrine related to that as we tackle chapter 7. But practically, there's much we can learn from the life of Stephen. He's a great role model for us in many ways, and that's what I want to focus on in our study this morning, so in the next three weeks we'll, we'll go into chapter 7 and there's some great history there, there's some great doctrine there, and then we'll talk in detail about the transition that's occurring there. But today I want to focus practically on, on the life of Stephen, and, and that's why I've titled this sermon, Be Like Stephen, because that's what we should be, we should be like Stephen. And if you're anywhere near my age, and if you were a sports fan at any level, or even if you just watch TV... You likely remember the the Gatorade ads from 1991, and it was an ad campaign titled Be Like Mike. So for those of you around, you remember the Be Like Mike campaign? Yeah. Obviously talking about Michael Jordan, the greatest basketball player to ever live. So I I mean, I, I know we're kind of in LeBron territory. I got facts for days. I got facts for days. Jordan's the greatest to ever do it. But back to the topic at hand, I graduated high school in 1991, when that ad campaign came out. And at that time, everyone did want to be like Mike. They really did. There's no doubt about it. So I want to be nostalgic for a second, and I want to watch that commercial. All right, to be fair, when that commercial came out, he he hadn't won any titles yet. So that shot against the Cavs was his biggest moment to date. Nothing personal against Cleveland. He did go on to win six titles um, after that and, and, you know, was, was uh, you know, pretty special if you were a basketball fan. And that Be Like Mike ad that we just watched, is, it's regularly cited as one of the most popular advertisements in sports marketing history, you know, widely successful. And the theme is pretty obvious. You know, you, you get it in the title. All the kids are trying to emulate Jordan with the moves, the tongue sticking out. All of it. And like I said, when I was growing up, I was one of those kids. Now I was a relatively unathletic white version. <laughs> so it wasn't pretty, but I was trying. But now that I'm, you know, mostly grown up, I see the futility in that desire. Not just in the fact that no matter how much I practiced, I could never do the things with a basketball that Michael Jordan was able to do with a basketball. But more than that, I, I now understand the futility of the eternal importance of things like basketball. And listen, I, I still love it. I still love basketball. If, if you love basketball, that's fine. If your kids are in basketball, that's great. I'm, I'm not bashing basketball or anything like that. But I am bashing the sole pursuit in life of anything physical to the neglect of the spiritual. So what I'm saying is don't just have physical dreams and goals, have spiritual ones as well. And don't just have physical heroes and role models, have spiritual ones too. Paul was bold enough to say in Scripture many times that the followers of Jesus should be like him. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 11:1 says, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Second Second Thessalonians 3.9 says, not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an ensample unto you to follow us. That is something that, that Paul said he wanted. He wanted people to follow him. You see, there are Bible characters that we should want to be like. So I don't want to be like Mike anymore. I've grown out of that. I want to be like Paul. And I want to be like Stephen. And here is the great thing about that desire shift. Because even though the truth is, like I said already, no matter how hard I tried, I could never be like Mike. I can be like Stephen. And you can too. Because we have the same Holy Spirit in us that Stephen had in him. And the attributes of of his life that we should copy aren't physical ones, but spiritual. So we can emulate him. And we can't emulate how he lived and how he lived his life. And and we should. We can and we should. So today, that's what we're going to look at. We're going to do a very simple character study on what we can learn from Stephen, what we can learn about his life, primarily from from Acts chapter 6. And I want to show you seven characteristics this morning, or seven ways that we can be like Stephen. Now, we're really going to only focus on five of them because we're, we're going to stay confined to our text and and a couple of them reside outside of our text but i'm going to give them to you if you're interested you can do kind of more study on that on your own so so we're going to get into this we're going to read all of chapter six and then we'll get into our study so we got a lot of ground to cover if you looked at your if you looked at your outline this morning um you know there's seven points you know one of the points has five subpoints. one of them has seven sub points guys you got to listen quick this morning Um, we got a lot of ground to cover. But let's um, let's see what we can learn. And we're going to set the whole context. So we're going to read all of chapter 6, and then we'll get into the study. Acts chapter 6, verse 1, the Bible says, And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. And the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Ghost, and Philip, Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, And a great company of priests were obedient to the faith, and Stephen, full of faith and power did great wonders and miracles among the people. And there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, the Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. And they suborned men and said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. They stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses which said, This man ceaseth, ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and against the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council looking steadfastly on him saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. Uh, for, for our, uh, just our ability to be here this morning. And, and I pray that, that you use this time in our life to, to change us, to mold us more and more into your image. And so, Lord, I pray that the Word of God does the work that only it can do. And I pray that you move me out of the way and that your spirit speaks clearly. And, Lord, I pray that we're, we're sensitive to hear your Word and change what we need to change in our life. And, Lord, I pray that everything that is said is true To your word, I pray that it's it's, it's glorifying and honoring to you. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the things to take note of as we move into chapter 6 and then through chapter 7 in this book of Acts is that the leading character is changing, right? And and it's obviously become Stephen, the focus of our study this morning. So Acts 1 through 5, the leading character is Peter, Right? In, in Acts 6 and 7, we don't, we don't see Peter. right? We, we see the focus being on, on Stephen. And I mention that because I just want you to understand, and again, we're going to talk more about this in the coming weeks, but I want you to understand that the, the transition in the book of Acts is in its early stages already. In many ways, Stephen provides a bridge from Peter to Paul. Peter is the, the person of focus 1 through 5, Stephen 6 and 7, and then look at Acts 8, 1, immediately following Stephen's death, and says, and Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And Saul is obviously the apostle Paul. Um, his, His name will be changed. And then in chapter 9, Saul or, or Paul has his salvation experience on that road to Damascus, and things start rolling from there. And again, we'll talk about all that as we move through, but I, I want you to see that the transition is already in place. Now we're not done hearing from Peter. We'll actually hear, through, hear about Peter uh, much and more, much, much more, but it's going to be different. It's not going to be from, you know, him leading the way with the apostles and preaching. Things are already starting to change. We know that by this point, the Jewish leaders are no longer ignorant. They had made up their minds to reject Jesus. So God was moving on. He's putting the final steps in place before he blows everything up and he moves to the Gentiles. And Stephen is a key cog in in that picture. And he's just a great man of God. One that was willing to die and that, that death was necessary as, you know, it was kind of those three rejections that I laid out for you. We'll talk more about it, but I laid out for you, you know, when we were doing the introduction and they rejected John the Baptist and they rejected Jesus himself and they rejected um, Stephen and all three of those men were, were killed. All three of those men died for, for that cause and, and so and that's an important part. But he's a great model for us. He's a great example, a great role model, and he exhibits a number of characteristics that we should desire and we should work towards in our lives. So let's see how we can be like Stephen. And like I've already told you, there's seven characteristics we're going to work through. And we're going to focus on the five we see in verses 8 through 15. That's, a, that's our primary text this morning. So the first one and the last one we'll move through very quickly. Um, but, but here they are. Here's where it starts. And this is the first way we should be like Stephen, and that is in his charity. We should be like Stephen in his charity. And and this characteristic is primarily found in the first half of chapter 6 that we went through and we studied last Sunday. Because we learned last week, and we read it again today, that Stephen was part of the first group of men called out to be deacons. And the job of the deacons was to serve tables or provided for the physical needs of those in the church, particularly the widows. So the role of deacon was, and the role of deacon still is, the role of a servant. And that role requires humility and a willingness to serve. But not only that, to be done right, it must be done with a charitable heart. A heart of love for the people that's willing to be shown through action, through giving, even if it's just the giving of time. And Stephen was the first name mentioned in this list. It's, it's as though Stephen was un, a unanimous choice for the job. It was a given because he was a man of charity. And again, we don't, we don't, we're not going to take the time. We don't have the time to really go through all of this. But you see that charity on full display at the end of chapter 7 when he, when he gave up his life for Christ. And as he was dying, I want you to see what he says in Acts 7.60. He says, and he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. You see, he was a man of charity. If you take Acts 760 and that act and you compare it to verses like John 15:13, that says greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And you compare that to 1 John 3:16 about the love that is required to lay down our life. For a cause, you can see a a fuller picture of the charity that Stephen had. And he's a man worth following in that regard. So so we should be like Stephen in his charity. But then next, second, we should be like Stephen in his character. In his character. And with respect to godly character, Stephen was filled up. Because he to be made a deacon, according to verse 3, He had to be a man of honest report and full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. So he obviously checked those boxes. He was a man of honest report. He's full of the Holy Ghost, full of wisdom. Then in verse 5, the Bible says, specifically speaking of Stephen, he was full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. So Luke doubles down on his Holy Ghost filling. And then look at verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, Great wonders and miracles among the people. So we see is that he was full of faith again, and now we see power, and power comes from where the Holy Ghost. So it's basically the third time the Holy Ghost is mentioned, but the power is seen in the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. It was seen through those signs and miracles he was performing, but all this points to a man of great godly character because and, and, and we'll walk through these one by one we'll walk through them quickly but but we see it his honest report means he had a testimony or the right walk before the world that's what honest report means and you see that from verses like 1 timothy 3 7 in the context of the qualifications for a bishop or a pastor says moreover he must have a good report of them which are without lest he should fall into reproach and snare of the devil. And that's without the church, outside. Third John verse 12 said, Demetrius hath good report of all men and of the truth itself. Yea, we also bear record, you know that our record is true. And Stephen had a good report, an honest report. And so part of, of, of his character was being blameless before the world. But then Stephen was also full of the Holy Ghost. That means he had a right walk with God, so because he walked in the Spirit. So he had a right walk outwardly before the world, but that wasn't feigned. You see, an outward walk, that can, that can be faked, but an inward walk can't. God knows you can't fool the Lord. You can fool me, but you can't fool the Lord. And Stephen had both. Galatians 5.25 says, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And that's what Stephen did. He was full or filled with the Holy Ghost, just as Paul commands in Ephesians 5.18, and be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. So he had the right walk, both internally before the Lord and externally before the world. And then the next piece of his character was that he was full of wisdom. Even later in verse 10, the Bible says the counsel couldn't resist his wisdom. And this means he had a relationship with and understood the word. He understood the word of God because God and God's word are the only true sources of wisdom. Proverbs 2.6 says, For the Lord giveth wisdom. It's the Lord that giveth it. Out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. Psalm 119 verse 98 says, Thou through thy commandments has made me wiser than mine enemies, for they are ever with me. And Ephesians 1.17 says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. You see, wisdom, it comes from the Lord, and we receive it through God's word. And Stephen was full of it. And listen, there are many things we can be full of. But there's nothing better than the word of God. Too many times we're full of other things, and we're not full of God's Word. So you should spend time in it regularly and let it dwell in you richly. You can't have godly character without it. But then he was also full of faith. It means he believed God. That means he had the right worldview. He had the right worldview. He viewed life through the lens of God's Word. And what God had said, not through the lens of this world and what this culture says. Hebrews 11.1 1 gives us the definition of faith. It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And so, so break that down. The word substance is something real. right? That's what, it's a substance. It's something real. And evidence is proof. So faith is based on the proof of something real. What is the correct way to view this world having faith in the reality of God and God's ways? Listen, it's either creation or evolution. It's one of the two. There are only two explanations for everything you see. So explore the evidence and tell me which one you think is real. What's more plausible? Then put your faith on your conclusion and live your life accordingly. According to that faith, that's all that God asks of us. But it should be complete, no matter where that faith leads us. For Stephen, it led to death. That's how much he believed it. He was willing to die for it. So let me ask, what are you willing to do for your faith, the faith that you have, have, the worldview, the way you view everything in this life? What are you willing to do for it? Will you at least die to yourself and prioritize the Lord and the things of the Lord? It should at least lead to that. And it should lead to living your life in a way that shows it. That shows that you believe that that God is the creator. That everything, everything that we see, it consists by him and for him. And that's what Stephen did. Because lastly, he was full of power, and that means he understood the work of the Lord. Like I said, the power comes from the Holy Ghost, but it's the outpouring. It's it's the Holy Ghost power in action. And all of his character and all of his faith, it led to just that. It led to powerful action on behalf of Stephen. That is the natural result. All of Hebrews 11, we just read Hebrews 11.1, you know, that defines faith. And then the rest of that chapter goes on and defines those Old Testament heroes of the faith, right? And you go through that, what's it say? It says, by faith, such and such did such and such. By faith, they did this and that. Their faith led to action. And that was true of Stephen as well. Stephen took all those positive things he was full of and then went to work for the Lord and performed signs and miracles, and just got to work in a powerful way. And we, when we have that godly character, that will be the natural result. That will be, the, the, our faith will lead to action. Paul said this about himself in 1 Corinthians 15.10, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. He's like, man, listen, I, I got to work, and I worked harder than anybody. I was able to do it through the grace that God, through, through the life of Christ. But I didn't just sit on it. I labored more abundantly than they all. Romans 15, 19, he said, Through mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about unto Elycrium, they fully preached the gospel of Christ. And that verse helps define for us the work that we really should be involved with. And involved in preaching the gospel it's working the mission it's acts one eight. it's making disciples so get to work there because that's a sign that you have godly character because that's what your life is about and we need to be like Stephen in his character but as we just talked about his character and his faith and all that came from it led to action so third we can see that we need to be like Stephen in his conviction we need to be like Stephen in his conviction. Because he was willing to not only serve tables, but also go preach and contend for the faith. Look at verse 9 of Acts chapter 6. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the Synagogue of the Libertines, and Cyrenians, and the Alexandrians, and them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. Okay, now we'll get into Stephen's conviction in just a minute. But let me explain a couple things here first. The synagogue of the Libertines would have just been a a Jewish synagogue in Jerusalem for those Jews that would have lived or or been from somewhere outside, who were from somewhere outside of Jerusalem. And Libertines just refers to a social standing, those Jews who weren't under Roman control. And then the other names are obviously geographical regions. And so it's just, you know, it was, just, it was a synagogue in Jerusalem that included people from outside of Jerusalem. And there are a couple of very interesting places found in this list. Uh, the first of which is Alexandria. And this is the first mention of Alexandria in the Bible. Alexandria is a city in Egypt and Egypt is a picture of the world. Something that opposes God and, and the people of God and And what you're going to find throughout the Bible is Alexandria is always in opposition to God and the movement of God, as it's found in this verse. It's no coincidence that in Acts chapter 6, we also have the first mention of of a city named Antioch. That was back in verse 5. And Antioch and Alexandria are always at odds and always in opposition. We'll hear more about each city, and we'll learn more about each city as we move through the book of Acts. But you need to notice the groundwork that God's laying here. It's no coincidence he puts these first mention of both these cities in the same chapter. And Antioch is tied to a deacon in a very positive light. And Alexandria is tied to a synagogue that is disputing Satan. Disputing the word of God. So you should catch that here. And if you do, it will shine light on future passages and when we talk about them. And the other geographical location of note in this verse is Cilicia. And that's noteworthy because of what Paul says. In Acts 22.3, when he's given his testimony, Paul said, I am verily a man, which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, yet bought, brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of his fathers, and was zealous for God, as ye all are this day. See, Paul was from that city, Cilicia, or modern day would be southern Turkey. So it means he's, it's likely he was part of this synagogue. Because we know from Acts 8.1 he was in Jerusalem. In Acts 22.3 he says he was brought up in this city, in in Jerusalem, at the feet of Gamaliel. So it was likely that he was part of this synagogue. And it's a a safe deduction to say he would have been part of those disputing Satan. Or (laughs) disputing Satan. Disputing Stephen. I mean, he was one of the leaders of of Israel and the, the religious zealots. So it's likely he would have been a part of this group. And Stephen was willing to dispute these religious zealots, likely including Saul, because of his conviction for the truth of Christ. He wasn't silent about it. And as we've seen with the apostles all the way throughout this book so far, he wasn't looking for a fight. But if a fight came to him, he wasn't going to shy away from what he knew was true. Because he had conviction about it. And and he wasn't even necessarily going to fight back, but he was going to stand on truth. He wasn't going to compromise because he had conviction. He was willing to live by what Jude, verse 3 says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. And sometimes that's necessary, I mean like Aaron Tippin said, if you got you got to stand for something or you'll fall for anything. And one thing Christianity has lost in this Laodicean and time of apathy is a backbone. And now again, I'm not I'm not saying to be a fighter. You shouldn't be a fighter, but you should be willing to stand for truth, to stand for holiness, to stand for righteousness. So, just as an easy example, we shouldn't accept in the church what we see going on in our culture and the changes in culture and, you know, a woke agenda or whatever you want to call it. We should stick to truth and contend for what God says constitutes a marriage. And he says it in Genesis 2.25. And we should... Stick and contend for what God says constitutes a gender. And he says there too. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he, him. Male and female created he, them. And that settles it. (laughs) Period. I don't care what our culture says. I care what God says. And listen, I know for the most part I'm preaching to the choir with regard to this point, and I could probably get you know, more amens if I really wanted them and I really pushed it. But listen, I also believe we should not accept what culture says about how to raise a family or the elevation of secular activities and events over the church. I believe we should not accept psychology over biblical counsel. I believe this world hates us and never has our good in mind. I am convicted about those things. And I'm willing to say them out loud. I'm not, I'm not looking for a fight. I don't want to fight. But I'm willing to say them out loud. And contend for the truth of God's word. And we need a godly conviction like Stephen. And be willing to take a stand. But if you if you're, agree with that, and you're willing to take a stand, you need to know what you're taking a stand on. And Stephen did so forth. We need to be like him in his competence. In his competence. You see, he wasn't just bold. He was smart. He had done his homework. He knew the book. Look at verse 10. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. So Stephen was willing to talk, but he knew what he was talking about. And many times, you know, we'll see young Fired up individuals and they, you know, go take on fights that they shouldn't, and they're part a part of arguments and disputings that they have no business being a part of because they're not ready. And so then they get beat up. And I've always heard if you're gonna be stupid, you better be tough. (laughs) And that's true. I just think the better approach is don't be stupid. Get prepared, learn the book. Put the time in to become competent in it. That's why we emphasize around here all the time, 2 Timothy 2.15, study to serve thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not being ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. There's so much in that verse It talks about studying and being approved before God, being a workman and not being ashamed, rightly dividing, and it, it all gets to competence in God's word. So let me ask you a question. Do you know what you know? Or do you just know what I know and what I've shared with you? Or what Jeff knows and what he's shared with you? Or what your life group leader knows and what they've shared with you? How competent are you? Stephen was so competent that they could not resist his wisdom and his spirit. And, of course, he had the Holy Spirit inside of him. We've talked about that already, but that's actually not the spirit that's being talked about here. You see, it's a lowercase s. It's his own spirit that is being informed by the Holy Spirit. You see a great example of this in Job 32, verse 8. But there is a spirit in man, and the inspiration or spirit of the Almighty giveth them understanding. And that understanding and wisdom in Stephen was unbeatable. They couldn't resist it. Now, understand, I think I put this on your outline sheet. Couldn't resist, does not equal receive, because they certainly didn't receive his message. In fact, not being able to resist Stephen's message, in, in not being able to resist it, they resisted the Holy Ghost. That's what Acts 751 7 says. Ye stiff necked, this is part of, this is it's part of Stephen's boldness in his. In his preaching, ye stiff necked and uncircumcised in hearts and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. So, in resisting, in, in not being able to resist his message, they resisted the Holy Ghost, but they couldn't oppose it. They couldn't oppose what he said, they couldn't withstand it. That's what resist means in this context. And the truth of God's word can never be resisted or opposed or withstood, not in sincerity. But listen, here's the great thing. So the truth of God's word cannot be resisted. But if your spirit is informed by the Holy Spirit resulting in wisdom from the word, then you can resist the devil. You can withstand him. James 4, 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So God's word can't be resisted, but the devil can. We can resist him. We can stand up to him. We can withstand his onslaught. But you can only do that as you gain competence in the word. And I know that to be true as a fact because we have a literal example of the devil being resisted during the life of Jesus. You can find it in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4. And how did Jesus resist the devil? By being competent in scripture. Three times the devil came and tempted him, and three times Jesus resisted him by quoting scripture. Matthew 4, 4. But he, Jesus, answered and said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Matthew 4, 7. Jesus saith unto him, unto the devil, It is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Matthew 4, verses 10 and 11. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, thou shalt serve him, uh, and him only shalt thou serve. And then verse 11, then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. You see, the devil was resisted through competence in Scripture. So, you you, you know, you you ask why. It's like, I mean, you're you're always harping on, you know, studying the Word of God and spending time in the Word of God. Why? Well, do you have trouble with, you know, dealing with temptation? Do you have trouble dealing with satanic attack in your life? Do you have trouble dealing with your flesh? Well, the the Bible gives us a pattern on how to deal with it. Being competent in scripture. And when you're competent in scripture, you have a means to fight back and resist and withstand. So, okay, so don't complain. If you're, if you're not willing to be competent in Scripture, don't, don't complain when you're losing those battles to temptation all the time. It goes hand in hand. So we need this level of competence. We need to be like Jesus and Stephen. So then fifth, we should be like Stephen in this Christ-likeness. Because everywhere you turn, Stephen was just like Jesus. Even during his death, that we looked at earlier, we read, we read Acts 7, verse 60. And, and in that death, Stephen said, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Well, that's the same thing Jesus did. Jesus asked his Father to forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's the same request. Now, Jesus' request was answered. Stephen's was not. The sin was laid to their charge in Acts chapter 7, and we're here today because of it. But God did not, and still didn't give up on Israel, and he will get back to them very soon and ultimately save them at his second coming. But it's the same. They, S- Stephen and Jesus had the same request and they acted the same. Stephen was Christ-like in so many ways. And, and we don't have time to go through all of them. But I, but I want you to see the similarities even in the accusations against him in verses 11 through 14. Look, look there. Acts six eleven. Then they suborned men, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. <clears throat> Excuse me. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses which said, This man ceases not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. So again, there, there, there's way more that we could look at and there's way more to this. But, but let me show you the Christ-likeness of Stephen in seven ways through these verses that, that we just looked at. And I've put these on your outline sheet without any blanks so that we can move through them very quickly. So you can, just, you can just listen to me. But first of all, we saw back in verse 10 that Stephen's enemies couldn't resist his wisdom. They couldn't answer his arguments. Well, the same goes for Jesus. Matthew 22:46, 46. And no man was able to answer him, speaking of Jesus a word. Neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. They couldn't resist him. They couldn't, couldn't, you know, stump him. With Stephen, Acts 6:11 says they suborned men to speak against him. Suborn means they bribed or colluded with them to bring a false accusation. Acts 6:12 says that they set up false witnesses. Well, in Matthew chapter 26, verses 59 and 60, it says now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Yea. Though many false witnesses came, yet found they none, and at the last, two false witnesses. And then we'll see verse 61 here in a second. But finally, they got some false witnesses that made sense, and it was the same. They were liars that the council had put together in in both cases. Then next, Stephen was accused of blasphemy. They said he spoke blasphemous words against Moses and against God and against the holy place and against the law. It's an interesting order they chose in both of those cases, you know putting Moses before God, putting the holy place, a physical thing, before the law, a spiritual thing. But whatever, you know, that's, that's who they are. But we see the same thing with Jesus. Matthew 26, 65, Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold now, we have heard his blasphemy. And then fourth, verse 12 says, They stirred up the people against, against Stephen. People who had been on the side of the apostles and had been on the side of the followers of Jesus today. Remember when, when they had imprisoned them earlier, they let, the, they let the apostles go free because they feared the people. Well, this exact same thing happened with Jesus. A week before Jesus' crucifixion, he rides into town with the people crying, Hosanna, Hosanna on the highest, laying down the palm leaves, acknowledging him as king. And not even a week later, Matthew 27:20 20 says, But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should seek Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And that's exactly what they did. And then next in verse 13, the council accused Stephen of not following the law and gonna change the custom of Moses. And this had been an accusation against Jesus and his disciples throughout his ministry. For example, Matthew 12. Verses 1 and 2, And at that time Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn, and his disciples were at hunger and began to pluck the ears of corn to, and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, the disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. Like, so they questioned him in that, the same as Stephen. In 6th and verse 14, Stephen was accused of forecasting of the destruction of the temple. This is, they're obviously just using the same playbook they used against Jesus a few months earlier. Matthew 26.61, now we learn what those false witnesses said against Jesus. And they said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And, and that's, you, can, you can see what he actually said in John 11 and other places. And it's just taken out of context and lies against him. Because the beat just continues. And then last, the seventh comparison is that both Stephen and Jesus died for their beliefs. We see that Acts 7.60 with Stephen, Matthew 27.50 with Jesus and Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And there are many others you can pull, but I, you know, again, I'm just trying to, for the most part, stay confined to our text. Obviously, that last one isn't, and the first one kind of wasn't. But, but there's just everywhere you turned, Stephen was Christ-like in his manner, in his actions, in the accusations against him. And we're going to see some of the same thing happen with Paul. But I think anytime you can be compared to Jesus like that, that's probably a good thing. And the council treated J- Stephen just like Jesus all the way to his death. And they treated him like Jesus because he was acting like Jesus. And that's our calling too. To live a life of likeness in a culture that certainly is not. But next we need to see how we should be like Stephen in his countenance. So this is 6 in his countenance. Look at verse 15. And all that sat in the council looked steadfastly on him, saw his face as it, as it had been the face of an angel. And this is great because as the conflict erupted, Stephen did not. And there was no need for him to do so because he was on the side of truth. And God was on his side. And Stephen's countenance was evidence of this. It was that of an angel. And listen, when I, when I read this, I can't help but think back to a very similar scenario with Moses in the Old Testament. As Moses was spending time with the Lord, you know, receiving the law from the Lord up on Mount Sinai, the children of Israel and Aaron lose their mind, and they make a golden calf to worship. And when Moses came down off the mount from communing with God, listen to what Exodus 34:29 says about him. And it came to pass when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony in Moses' hand, when he came down from the mount, that Moses wist not that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. You see, Moses at that point was a reflection of God's glory because of the time he had spent with God. And his countenance literally showed it. In fact, it was so bright, Moses had to wear a veil when he was talking and when he was around the children of Israel. And Paul talks about this event in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, nearly the entire chapter. And he compares it to the veil that's still over Israel's heart. And there's a ton in that passage that, you know, that we don't have time to discuss. But, but he ends it in 2 Corinthians 3.18 by saying, But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And Paul is saying that, that we get to see God's glory through the looking glass of his word. We don't have to look through a veil. We can look with an open face, and as we do that, as we do that consistently, we are changed more and more into the image of him. And when we go through that process, and the more that we look like him, the more of his glory we reflect for everybody to see, even our enemies. And they may not like it. They may even kill us because of it. You see, Stephen's face didn't lead to the council, council's repentance. It led to their rage. But no matter what happens, they can't deny the glory. And that is exactly what our life is to be about. About bringing God glory and living a life that that does that and is visible in doing so. And you can't hide it. And you don't want to hide it. And so people know what you're about. His light shines through you for all to see. 1 Corinthians 8.3 says, But if any man love God, the same is known of him. If you love God, others will know it. You can't hide it. You don't want to hide that. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 5.16, To let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And that's exactly what our life is to be about, glorifying our Father in heaven. It's what everything is to be about. We talk all the time about the theme of the Bible being a kingdom, right? And Jesus being the king ruling with all authority. And why is that? Why is that the theme of the Bible? And, and that him being king and that kingdom It's because that's how he will ultimately get the glory that is due his name. But that's not going to come to the millennium. That's not going to be in full effect until the day of the Lord. That's why in the meantime, it's so important for him to sit on the throne of your heart and my heart. So that our life is giving him the glory that's due his name. Now our life is about building his kingdom and not our own. Because our kingdom is about our glory. But we're to be about his glory. And we are to have the countenance of Jesus, the angel of the Lord. I don't think it's any coincidence that it says that his face looked like an angel. Because we're to be changed into his image, into the image of Jesus, and live his life. Because according to Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't have my life now. I exchanged life, and what a great exchange. Christ for the criminal. I was the criminal. And I exchanged that rotten, dirty, no good life for perfection, for glory. Now it's on me to to show it to everybody else. What good is it for me to show my life? That was stained with sin and try to build my kingdom. There's no value in that. That is vanity, it's wasted time, and it's blasphemy. God deserves the glory from our life. I don't have my life anymore. And if you are a Christian, you don't either. Colossians 3:4, when Christ Who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. And that is what we should show. We should be like Stephen in his countenance. And then, last, and, and, and again, we don't have time to flesh this one out, we didn't plan on it, but we should also be like Stephen in his courage. Should be like Stephen in his courage. He had the conviction of what he believed in his heart, and that conviction led to courage. That's been a prayer of the apostles throughout this book so far, right, for boldness to speak the word of God. And that's exactly what Stephen does. He has the courage to stand in the midst of persecution. And that answer to those prayers are on full display. And Stephen, he disputed with those in the synagogue, and then you really see this throughout the entirety of chapter 7. As he speaks the truth honestly and courageously, and he doesn't hold anything back. We saw a little bit of it already in Acts 751. And that held true to the very end of his life, dying as the first martyr for Christ. And because of his courage, he didn't give in and he didn't give up. And he was able to do it not only because of his courage, but because of everything that we've talked about this morning, because of his charity, because of his character. Because of his conviction, because of his competence, because of his Christ-likeness, and because of his countenance. You see, we should all want to be like Stephen. I mean, Michael Jordan was cool and all. And he could do some pretty special things on a basketball court. But when it comes to what really matters in life, who cares? I'd rather spend my life trying to emulate Stephen than to stand at the judgment seat of Christ, prepared and not ashamed. That's a life worth living. That's a life worth being like. So let's be like Stephen. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed.